Good evening. Last night we had joy. Tonight we will have awe and wonder. You think there's a theme developing here? Why are the teachers all of a sudden so upbeat and positive? We're just following you. Einstein said, there are two ways to live your life. One is as if nothing is a miracle, and the other is as if everything is a miracle. So tonight I want to try to raise some awe and wonder, arouse some. Because it's easy to have a dark and cynical attitude toward the world, toward this life, especially when you see all this suffering. I've been struggling with that all my life, a dark attitude. I consider myself now a cynic in recovery. And this is not to say that there isn't reason for cynicism. There is. There's civilization, <laughs> politics, religion, fashion. As Lily Tomlin said, no matter how cynical you get, it's impossible to keep up. But Dharma practice is an antidote to cynicism because it trains us to be in the moment, present for the world as it displays itself. It teaches us to withhold our constant projections of likes and dislikes on reality and to be more alive and innocent and living in beginner's mind, as Suzuki Roshi called it, beginner's mind. Just for a moment, sit here and feel yourself and look around the room as if you were experiencing it for the first time. You had never seen this before. You were like an alien. Wow, what's going on here? <laughs> Dharma practice also prepares us for awe and wonder by bringing us into the most basic aspects of our existence, into our breath and heartbeat and body and the senses and mind. Carl Jung once said, if you're depressed, you're too high up in your mind. I once interviewed Swami Muktananda, and I asked him if he did miracles, and he said, no, I don't need to do miracles. I just tell people to be aware of the circulation of blood throughout their bodies. 
When we bring our attention back to this, to just this, we find this pulsing, energized, warm, sensate being, this piece of the universe that can move itself around and know of itself. This is a very rare event, at least in our neighborhood of the Milky Way. As the cosmologist Brian Swim says, four billion years ago, the Earth was just a cooling, molten ball of rock, and now it can sing opera. It is a great gift of humans to be able to wonder at ourselves. And I propose that by deliberately reflecting on the mysteries, that we can bring vitality and curiosity and energy and delight into our Dharma practice and into our lives. Einstein says, one cannot help but be in awe when one contemplates the mysteries of eternity, of life, of the marvelous structure of reality. It is enough if one tries merely to comprehend a little of this mystery every day. Never lose a holy curiosity. So to arouse your holy curiosity, I'd like to offer a little guided reflection and maybe a little guided meditation. It's an exercise I call Be Here Wow. <laughs> and it's an exercise for your awe muscle. The awe muscle is the one that makes your jaw fall open in amazement. And I'll begin with the very fact of our existence. It is extremely improbable that you are sitting here right now in these bodies, with these brains, contemplating the improbability of your being here right now. The odds against it are astronomical, literally and figuratively. It's a very delicate balance of particles and forces that made the world turn out like this. For instance, at the Big Bang, if the size of the neutrons or the size of the electrons or protons had been just the slightest bit smaller or bigger, or the nuclear force holding the atoms together or the electromagnetic force trying to pull them apart had been just the slightest fraction of a bit weaker or stronger, then all the atoms would have collapsed or flown apart, and then no elements would have been created, no carbon, no oxygen, and then where would we be? Us carbon-based life forms, us oxygen-breathing life forms. It's quite elementary. As far as we know, life is very rare in the universe. Remember that eight other planets spun out of the same cloud of gases that created this planet, and there doesn't seem to be any life on those. 
Recently, the scientists have discovered 30 more planets in other solar systems, but they doubt that there's any life on any of them because they're all located in so-called dead zones. They're either too close to their suns, or they have wobbly orbits, or they're too close to the center of the galaxy and getting too many x-rays and gamma rays. We happen to be just the right distance from our sun and at just the right place in our galaxy for life like this to appear. Just imagine if the Earth were a tiny bit, if our orbit were a tiny bit further away from the sun, just a couple thousand miles. It may have been too cold for life to exist or else we would all be woolly mammoths and we'd all be huddled together around the equator and of course if the earth's orbit had been a little bit closer to the sun burn baby burn you know it it wouldn't have happened james lovelock the biologist and earth scientists scientist wrote the climate and chemical properties of the earth now and throughout its history seem always to have been optimal for life as we know it. For this to have happened by chance is as unlikely as to survive unharmed driving blindfold through rush hour traffic. Something very strange and rare seems to be going on here. The famous biologist E.O. Wilson illustrates the rarity of life by asking us to take a walk with him from the center of the earth out to the surface. So we walk for a couple of months through molten rock and then hardened rock and, uh, you know, trudging along. And then about a half hour before the end of our walk, we begin to see some little mites and bacteria floating in the waters under the earth. and then. About 15 minutes before the end of our walk, we begin to see little worms and bugs. And then all of a sudden, we burst through the surface. And there are millions and millions of life forms everywhere we look, in every nook and cranny, life thriving, all different forms and sizes and complexions. And, and then five, 10 minutes later, it's all disappeared unless an airplane goes by. You know. And as far as we know, this little thin little surface around this planet is the only place in the universe where life exists. And it exists in such profusion. Wilson says that some places in the Amazon, there are trees that are the habitat for 50 different species of beetles. There'll be big beetles that live all over the tree and smaller beetles that live just on one branch of the tree and inside the little cracks in the bark, there'll be other little smaller species of beetles that have their home. And then of course, beneath that, you have the little colonies of mites. And then beneath that, of course, the ever-present bacteria. Every place it's possible, there is life. And we're not just talking about the rarity of life, but also the rarity of this human life, this complex life 
this life that has this amazing self-awareness. The Buddha has a parable. He says, imagine there's a turtle swimming through the seven seas, way, you know, the vastness of the oceans of the earth. And there's a yoke, a little lifesaver, tossed out, floating free, also along the seven seas. The chances, he says, that that turtle will surface right through the center of that yoke are the same chances that you have of being born a human. This precious human existence, he calls it. When we reflect on the improbability of our existence in life, uh, we not only arouse awe and wonder, we also sense the profound message of the Buddha about anatta, about no self. Because we really see clearly that we are this temporary emergence out of the flow of cosmic and biological evolution and all these elements coming together and all the changes that life goes through. We're an appearance. And as the Buddha says, all things that come together out of various elements and many causes and conditions are subject to disillusion. There is no lasting self. But for now, what an amazing combination of elements we are. And I'd like to uh, lead us into our bodies and investigate this complex life form. First of all, this body is made of the heavy elements of oxygen and nitrogen, carbon, calcium, and phosphorus. All heavy elements created in the explosion of supernovas in the early history of the universe. So we're literally made of stardust. As the song says, we are stardust. We are golden. Thich Nhat Hanh says, once I was a cloud, and once I was a rock, and this is not poetry, this is science. As I guided you through the elements meditation the other day, I talked about how our bones are made of calcium phosphate, quite literally the clay of earth molded into this shape and how most of our body, 75%, is liquid, and most of that liquid has the same chemical consistency as the oceans, and how we sweat and cry seawater, quite literally. Where else did we think our bodies came from? We are like earth sprouts, you know, that gained a lot of mobility. And we're also shaped by the earth, shaped by the natural forces. These fingers and hands, these legs and feet, this upright posture, this big brain, even our thoughts and emotions are designed 
by nature as life continued to adopt and change to the ever-changing earth environments. For example, for over a billion years of life on earth, there were no legs and feet. They weren't necessary because land had not emerged. Then land came, volcanoes erupt, continents bump into each other, ice ages come and go, and life has to figure out new ways to survive and grow new appendages and new plumages and new ways of sensing and moving. Nature is like a sculptor, an artist, and we are the art. Let's examine this artwork reflect on the marvelous construction and functioning of you. I'd like you to close your eyes for a few minutes. You don't have to sit up straight, just close your eyes. <laughs> and once again, bring your attention to your breath. And of course, before you brought attention to your breath, there it was doing its job breathing. In fact, if you tried to stop breathing and held your breath, you would pass out and breathing would continue. It's like life got into you and wants you to live. We breathe about 15 or 20,000 times a day, a free oxygen lunch every few minutes, a few seconds. And we get about 75 to 100 million breaths in an average lifetime. That's how long the parts last, you know? And of course, with every breath, as I said in the Elements Meditation, we are like cells in the great breathing of this single organism called Gaia, the Earth. We are feeding the plant kingdom and getting fed by the plant king kingdom, exchanging nutrients. And keeping your eyes closed, see if you can feel your heartbeat, if you can sense it, or you can bring your fingers to your wrist or to your neck and feel the pulse. Did you ever see through a microscope in a biology class little microbes, amoebas, and they're all twitching in this rhythm? Maybe you're related. Your heart beats a few billion times in an average human life. And every few minutes, the entire blood supply in your body moves to all the cells. And if laid end to end, your blood vessels and veins would go around the earth twice. Every day, your heart extends the energy equivalent of lifting a ton and carrying it for a mile or two. Now bring attention to your head, where you think you live. 
And once again, move your upper and lower teeth together for a moment. Feel the skull, the hardness of bone. It's taken 500 million years of vertebrate evolution to get your head into this shape with its narrow, brooding forehead. The skull houses your brain, holds your face in place. You might be interested to know that the first heads were just little clumps of cells that grew up around the mouths of little marine creatures so they could manipulate their mouths better in order to get and uh, capture food. And then the senses grew up around these little clumps of cells, the senses, in order to see and find the food better. So the basic reason for the head, the better to eat you with, <laughs> my dear, and you can feel, you know, the you can sense the holes in your head. You know, that's where the senses are. Located close to the brain, or very conveniently, you know, the holes for the eyes, the holes for the ears, and the nose, and the mouth. Very well designed. And then you can feel that great opening in the back and the bottom of your skull where the spinal column extends down like a cable system to the rest of the body. Once again, move your jaw and feel the power of the jaw, a very powerful hinge. The first jaws were developed by marine worms about you know, 500, 350 million years ago. And it gave them a great survival advantage because they could eat things that were bigger than them. They could chew them. And now many, many of the forms of life on our planet are chewers. Worms, you know, actually invented our phyla of vertebrates. And do we ever thank them? No, we put hooks into them and use them as bait. Now move attention for a few moments down your spine and uh, move your arms and your fingers a little, your shoulders. Just feel, just get a sense of this, a kinesthetic sense of this skeleton here. Maybe you could visualize a skeleton that you've seen, you know, in Halloween or Ungrateful Dead posters. There are 600 different bones in your body. And every seven years or so, all of the uh, bone matter is replaced. The, I find the development of bones is actually a Dharma lesson. I'll give you this little Dharma lesson. Calcium and sea salts, which is what eventually formed into our bones, used to be irritants to the little microscopic plasma creatures that floated around. 
And they used to flush these sea salts and calcium and phosphorus, uh, all this hard stuff out. But then some of them realized that if they could just live with these irritants, they would form this little protective skeleton. So it just shows that, you know, if you can live with the difficulties, it could turn into an advantage. <laughs> Suffering is a gift. <laughs> now, just for a few moments, uh, close your eyes again and, and feel, put your hand over your stomach and feel this mass of guts. We're getting down tonight. At this moment, vital nutrients are being extracted from food. Blood sugars are being filtered. Waste is being processed. All this amazing plumbing work is going on down there. Your stomach has to produce a new lining every three days just to protect itself from its own digestive juices, which means that your stomach creates approximately a half a million new cells every minute. Also, right now, inside your stomach, there are more individual living beings than all the humans that have ever lived on planet Earth. Billions and billions of individual bacteria and microbes living their lives here inside your stomach, vital to your existence. You're pregnant with life. <laughs> Lynn Margulis, the great microbiologist, says, our concept of the individual is completely arbitrary. We are all walking communities. We're like ecosystems unto ourselves. By the way, the bacteria are the most successful life forms that have ever lived. Three and a half billion years they've been here, and uh, they're everywhere. There's been some speculation that the bacteria invented us as moving feedlots. You get room and board and a tour of the neighborhood, you know? <laughs> now open your eyes and bring your attention to your hands for a bit. And look at your hands and realize that at one point they were the stubs of fins. And at one point your fingers were webbed like frogs' fingers, and not just in previous life forms in the past, but in your mother's womb as you developed stubs of fins and webbed fingers, as you cycled through the DNA of amphibians and fish. Two million years or so ago, not long ago, in biological time, these hands and fingers were barely able to 
work with the clumsiest of tools and rocks. And now, just in two million years, some of them can type a hundred words a minute, play the piano, build computers and rockets. Amazing. Amazing phenomena. Move your wrists around. Notice you can almost move them 360 degrees, just a little bit of twerk there. And then move your shoulders. You can almost move your shoulders 360 degrees. Most other mammals can't do that, except for the primates. And the evolutionary scientists say the reason we can do that is because of our primate ancestors who swung through the trees, braciating, and that's what developed this flexibility. Our bodies are built out of the triumphs and defeats of all the life that came before us. The Buddha says, this body is not mine. This is a quote. This body is not mine or anyone else's. It has arisen due to causes and conditions. Darwin wasn't around back then. This body is really, it's evolution's body, you know? And it's a loner. This is from a biologist uh, named Carolyn Ackerman. Watching life, it's easy to spot the signs. The push to birth is a giveaway. The urge to break or squeeze toward daylight through shells, seeds, vaginal tracts. So is the hunger for growth, for dividing and multiplying, for clumps of cells, masses of eggs, milky clouds of larvae. So too the tendency to separate, to make boundaries, membranes, skin, but also to join, merge, not pool, flock, swarm. Likewise, the impulse to fidget among creatures, to tremble, blink, shimmer, wobble, shiver, flex, clench, to hold on, grip. And the call to voice, to signal, hoot, howl, hiss, chirp, bark, wail. Pervasive in life is the propensity to breathe, eat, digest, excrete, copulate, collaborate, and conspire, and to suffer aging and death. We did not have to wait for modern biology to tell us that we are akin to other creatures. It was probably our first great thought with our totem systems and animal folk tales. Across the illusions of form, there is kinship. So now let's come to our senses. And there's really a lot to wow about here. Once again, I'd like you to close your eyes and just bring attention to your hearing. Listen to the sounds around you and remember that the outside world is completely silent. Our senses are made for survival. And life evolved this amazing Rube Goldberg-like sound system as a way to read the environment by hearing it inside your head. It all starts with events that cause the air to ripple in waves, 
And these waves vibrate on that drum of your ear, which rattles three little bones that press against a fluid, and the ripple of that fluid moves some little hairs that trigger nerve cells that send electrical signals to the auditory center of the brain, which produces what we call sound. Equal wonder is the fact that whatever the source of those airwaves, human voices, wind through trees, engines, our brain not only turns it into sound, but also identifies the source and translates it into meaningful information for us right now, we hope. Our sound system plucks meaning out of the air, quite literally, along with music and other delights, and you hardly have to lift a finger. Next time you listen to music, remember, you are the band, the orchestra, the singer, all of that beautiful sound is being created inside your head. Look around. Open your eyes if they aren't open yet. Uh, look around and what you will see is this amazing, ever-changing, three-dimensional masterpiece created by the greatest artist that has ever lived, your eyes and brain. For one thing, there is no color in nature. All the pigments and hues are being filled in by you, all this color. And what you're seeing is not the original. What you're seeing is a reproduction. What's happening at this moment is that these streams of photons, this light, is flowing and registering on the retina, on the screen of your retina. Upside down, by the way, if you, if you were to look at this picture, you know, in the original. And there are a hundred million receptors on the retina of your eye. And they take these streams of photons and turn them into electrical signals, which then are sent to all sorts of different areas of the brain, which then have a little conference call and decide what's important for you to see and know at this moment. And then the brain paints the picture for you and presents you with a moment-to-moment -moment snapshot of reality. and you hardly have to lift a finger. Now look down at the floor or your lap for a second and then look back up at me. Your eyes can change focus in a fraction of a second while adjusting for light and movement. They're like instamatics camera for dummies. The focusing muscles of your eyes, it's estimated, make up to 10,000 adjustments every day. The energy of equivalent of walking several miles.
as one biologist put it, the eye is just a small piece of flesh built of sugars, fats, water, and a little protein. And yet it has millions of precisely calibrated moving parts. In the embryo, groups of cells arrange themselves to create eyes and the million fiber optic nerve and the visual cortex of the brain as if they had met and agreed in advance on the design and construction of the most sophisticated sensing device imaginable. The scientists themselves are astounded by it. Darwin wrote, to suppose that the eye could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. So your brain and your senses are the true creators of this light and sound show. The philosopher Alfred North Whitehead wrote, the various qualities of the world are purely the creation of the mind. Nature always gets the credit. The rose for its scent, the nightingale for its song, and the sun for its radiance. But these experiences are our creation. The poets are entirely mistaken. They should address their lyrics to themselves. So there, all your dreams of being an artist are fulfilled. You don't have to go to music school. You don't have to take poetry or writing workshops, you know. We're all artists. Walt Whitman says, Oh, to have my life itself, my poem of joys. And Hafiz? Hafiz says, Oh, wondrous creatures, by what strange miracle do you so often not smile? <laughs> Just look for a few minutes at the brain, which has been called the three-pound universe. Just a couple statistics. Your brain processes approximately 11 million bits of information a second. and filters it through synaptical connections, trillions of possible synaptical connections, trillions upon trillions of them, and then decides, you know, what you need and constructs a picture of reality for you and presents it to you. I mean, it's, there's a lot going on in there. It's, if you could look inside your brain, you know, it would probably rival Times Square in its brilliant, flashing brilliance. Meanwhile, the scientists are discovering, you know, that's not you up there. That's not, there's no director up there. The brain seems to be this amazing self-organizing system. It can do everything all by itself. It doesn't need you at all. So brain, as one scientist put it, most of our experience happens on a subpersonal level. Nobody's home. In 1995, Time Magazine summarized the latest brain research. It was a cover story entitled, In Search of the Mind, 
and I'm sure most people were not aware that the mind was lost and maybe quite disturbed to discover that even the neuroscientists can't find it. The Time Magazine article concluded, this was the last sentence, despite our every instinct to the contrary, consciousness does not seem to be some entity inside the brain that corresponds to self, some kernel of awareness that runs the show. After more than a century of looking for it, brain researchers have concluded that such a self simply does not exist. Time Magazine. Why wasn't there a nationwide panic? <laughs> I mean, these are, scientists are telling us that the self doesn't exist. It doesn't need to exist. All of this goes on within us and without us. Isn't that liberating? You can let it alone. Let's look at consciousness for a moment. This is, you know, what this, this mystery. What is this thing we call consciousness, this awareness? The scientists and the mystics are equally baffled. It seems to have no substance. It doesn't seem to have a location anywhere. I don't know, maybe they haven't looked in the elbow yet. Maybe it's... It's mysterious. The scientists call it the hard problem of consciousness. Really, that's the, literally they say, this is the hard problem, in quotes. The Tibetans, who have been studying the mind for many centuries very carefully, consider consciousness to be the ground of being itself, almost like a deity, and they sing its praises in poems and dohas, little songs. Shabkar Lama, the body and all of the realms of our world are only mind. The mind is the artist creating it all. Stay with me just a little bit longer. We'll get even a little bit more awe and wonder aroused. Let's look at the mystery of life itself. What is the source of life? Well, we don't know. But we have found a molecule, the DNA. And it seems to be the key to something because the DNA is common to all forms of life. It grows every form of life. It's composed of four chemical compounds and depending on how they're arranged in these long strings of coded information, the DNA will contribute to the growth of a giant sequoia or a rose or an ant or a human being. Deoxyribonucleic acid much too cold and clinical a term for the seed of life. I propose a new acronym. The next time you see or hear the letters DNA, think divine natural abundance. Forget deoxyribonucleic acid. Divine 
natural abundance. And as you may know, your DNA, the information that builds and maintains your life, is almost 99.99% similar to the DNA of the person sitting next to you. The instructions for building and creating you are almost exactly the same as the ones for building and creating me and the Dalai Lama and George Bush and, and Julia Roberts. And this personality and IQ is just a thin coat of paint over the basic human design. As you also may know, oh, we share over 98.6% of our DNA with the great apes. And we share nearly 90% of our DNA with mice. Because most of the instructions for building and maintaining you are instructions for creating a basic mammal. That part of ident our identity, we usually just don't consider. And yet it is a huge part of what makes up our life and our experience. We share nearly 70% of our DNA with worms and nearly 50% of our DNA with yeast. <laughs> I mean, the Victorians were shocked when Darwin told them that they were related to the great apes. But now the scientists are saying that your mama was a germ, <laughs> essentially. But if we declare ourselves divine, is not the slime also divine? And if not, where do we draw the line? Who gets a soul, you know? Just the mammals? Just the primates? Maybe the fact is that the new science doesn't deny our divinity, it just denies our exclusive divinity. Maybe the whole thing, the whole mystery of life itself is divine. Okay, this is the, the wow that wows me one of the biggest. And that is that life has gone from a single cell to a being with 10 trillion cells, that's you. 10 trillion cells all working together your survival. Inside each of your cells, and by the way, each of your cells is a trillionth or many trillionth the size of a pinhead. Just unbelievably small. Inside each of your cells is a minuscule drop of seawater. And floating in that drop of seawater is a two yard long strand of DNA. Now, how can you get two yards of DNA into that minuscule place? The fact is that DNA is only about a molecule wide, so it's very thin, and it's wrapped millions of times around itself. So two yards of DNA in each of your 10 trillion cells, so that if your DNA was strung out end to end, it would go around the Earth several million times. Do the math. Ten trillion cells, two yards. <laughs> All of that information 
inside of you. All of the information that life has accumulated, all the lessons, all that, all that stuff is inside of you. You're like a living library of the history of life. The scientists are astounded. Francis Crick, who helped uncover the DNA, thinks that it couldn't have developed to this complexity in just the four or three and a half billion years of life on Earth. He says, we must have been seeded from some other planet already somewhat developed, you know, plasma, because it just couldn't have happened like this. He calls his theory um, directed panspermia, that, you know, and Lily Tomlin says that we, there may be DNA on other planets, but she says they probably spell it differently. <laughs> E.O. Wilson again. The chances of producing a human being through random chance in the universe is like a hurricane blowing through a junkyard and creating a 747. So be here, wow. <laughs> I offer you this reflection when you need a hint of wonder or an antidote to cynicism. You can devise your own, change it. You don't have to use the science. It's a way of gladdening the heart. It's also a revolutionary act because if you can be satisfied and fulfilled and delighted with what is just here, occurring naturally, then you won't need to consume so much and run around looking for fulfillment elsewhere. Rumi says, ah, is the, is the medicine, is the salve that will heal our eyes. And of course, one simple way to arouse wonder in just silent meditation is just to bring the beginner's mind in with you. And when you sit, just experience this as if for the first time, as if you weren't familiar with it. This body, this breath, this heart, this, these senses, this consciousness. Ask yourself, like a koan, what is this? How does it happen? The questions are like magical, mystical way to be here now and be here wow. I'll close with a poem by Edward Abbey who uh, was a great environmentalist and spent a lot of time in these deserts and Jack and I always read this poem when we go climbing in, in Joshua Tree during the Groff retreats. It's a lovely poem that I think evokes a kind of mystery that we all can have, the awe. Benedicto, may your trails be crooked, winding, lonesome, dangerous, leading to the most amazing view. May your rivers flow without end, meandering through pastoral valleys, tinkling with bells, past temples, castles, poets' towers, into a dark primeval forest where tigers belch and monkeys howl, through miasmal and mysterious swamps and down into a desert of red rock, blue mesas, domes and pinnacles and grottos of endless stone, 
and down again into a deep, vast, ancient, unknown chasm where bars of sunlight blaze on profiled cliffs, where deer walk across the white sand beaches, where storms come and go as lightning clangs upon the high crags, and where something strange and more beautiful and more full of wonder than your deepest dreams waits for you beyond the next turning of the canyon walls. Oh, wondrous creatures, by what strange miracle do you so often not smile? You're ringing the bell inside your head. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.